here for the first time. We are in week six of a series that I have entitled Redeemed. It's a walk through the book of Ruth, but it's a, it's a look at the book of Ruth through the lens of redemption. And, and the book of Ruth is really a story of redemption. It's a story of rescue. It's, it's tracing the lives of these two women through misery and hopelessness, through God's faithfulness, and watching God's kind of redemptive plan play out. It's an incredible foreshadow, as we're going to see today, for what God has promised and done in us through Jesus Christ. And so we're in week six of this. We've, we've kind of looked at it in, its, in forms of its movements, and its chapters are really divided up well into sort of narrative movements. It's not like other um, Bible books, because the book of Ruth is really a story. It's an entire narrative. It's, it's unfolding right in front of us. And so we look at it in these sort of broad movements, and we can't just pick verses out of there and say, oh, I like this or I don't. But this sort of retelling of the story is where we've kind of lost ourselves. And so for the first three weeks, we looked at, at chapter one, and we talked about sort of the misery of this woman named Naomi, and I'll kind of catch up to speed on that story in just a moment. And then this past three weeks, we're, we've kind of looked at the second part and seen God's faithfulness and God's kind of redemptive movements. And today what we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit of a, of a bigger overview of the story, and we're going to trace God's redemption, his promised redemption through the words of this guy named Boaz. So we're going to be looking at chapter 2 and looking at how God is foreshadowing this case of redemption and rescue through Boaz. So if you have your Bible, I want you to get to uh, Ruth chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a catch-up of Ruth chapter 1, and then we're going to read the whole chapter of, of 2. And so I want you, we're doing this every week, and I want you to be so familiar with the story where you just sort of know it. But the book of Ruth is really a story about two women. It's a story about these two women that have gone through incredibly difficult challenges together, have found themselves facing hopelessness, have found themselves facing despair. It's a, it's a story of faith. It's a story of God's redemption and his faithfulness. And it begins when a family led by a guy by the name of Elimelech um, kind of runs into a famine that was plaguing all of Israel. Israel was under famine. This story takes place during the time period of the judges, which is a very difficult time in the life of Israel. Difficult in terms as they didn't follow the Lord. They chose to do what was right in their own sight. And the way that sort of historical period worked in the Old Testament is God wanted to be Israel's king. He wanted the people to follow him. He wanted to live in a way where they say, God, you are our only king. But the people lived in constant rebellion. And so the people didn't want to follow God. They wanted to follow their own ways. And so what God would do is as the people rebelled, God would stir up things, famine or enemies, to kind of correct the people. They would come crying back to God, and God would redeem them through the judge. He would raise up a judge, Deborah, Samson, all those kind of people were great judges in the Old Testament. They would sort of speak on behalf of the people. The people would return to the Lord, and God would redeem them. And it was a cycle that was unfolding for a period of about 400 years. But it was a really dark period because people did what they wanted to do in their own sight, as the, in the book of Judges tells us at the very end. Well, this story takes place during that book, and Israel's in the middle of this famine, and so this family led by the name of a man named Elimelech decided that they needed to leave the promised land, the land that God had promised to protect and provide for them with. They just said, we're leaving, and we're going to the land of Moab, and Moab was not a, a, a physical enemy of Israel, but it was more of a, a kind of a worship enemy. It was a, people that were descended from, from Lot, and Lot was really wicked, and they worshiped this false god named Chemosh, but they were across the Dead Sea, and so Elimelech said, I'm going to take my family, we're going to go over there with those people because they have food. So Elimelech takes Naomi and his two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they drop, go all the way across. I almost said they drive. They drive all the way to Moab, 
drive a camel, I guess, all the way to Moab, right? And they get there, and they live there for years. Um, in fact, well, as soon as they get there, Elimelech actually dies, but the, the sons marry, and they live there for about 10 years. And Elimelech dies, and Naomi's left with these two sons, and they marry Moabite women. And sort of a long story really short, these sons die. The women aren't able to have babies, and so they're all left there as widows. Um, they're left with these two Moabite, si- or not sisters, but now sisters-in-law, Ruth and Orpha, and a, and a mother-in-law named Naomi. Without husbands, without children, no one to take care of them. And we spent a few weeks talking about the plight of the widow and those kind of things. But they were desperate. Well, Naomi hears that God has, has come to the aid of the Israelites. He has lifted the famine. He's now protecting the people again. And so Naomi, Naomi says, I've got to go back. So they start off on the road. Naomi and Ruth and Orpha, they start to go back to Israel. And she stops and she says, I can't do this to you. If you come back with me, back to me where my land is, you have nothing. There's nothing for you. I'm a widow. I can't protect you. I can't provide for you. I can't give you anything. I can't even have more sons that you could remarry. Your life is hopeless if you come with me. So the women, they're on this road, and they just weep, and they start crying, and they say, no, we're going to go with you. And Naomi, Naomi says, no, you can't. And so Orpha leaves, but Ruth hangs on to her. And then Ruth makes this really powerful speech in chapter 1 where she says, listen to me. I'm going with you. My God, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. I am with you. And when Naomi realizes that she can't turn Ruth away, she says, fine. So they go marching back into Bethlehem, that name that means the house of bread. They come marching back into town, and the whole town is stirred. Like, who is this? Oh, my goodness, you know who that is? That is Naomi. They left 10 years ago and their whole family, but they're not coming back together. It's just her and this Moabite woman, this foreigner. And they're saying, could this be Naomi? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. That name means pleasant and lovely. What I want you to call me, change my name to Mara, which means bitter. I want you to change my name. Don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara because God has brought me back broken. He has brought me back empty and I am bitter. And chapter one ends, right, as the barley harvest is beginning, the sort of promise of God with bitter, bitter Naomi having walked through difficult life and Ruth. And we talked about Ruth's kind of character and the change of life that she'd had when we've done all that. Well, that's where chapter one ends. We're going to read chapter two so that you can see it. And I won't explain it all. You'll be able to see it. We've done that several weeks in a row. Then I want to kind of pick out some things that, that we're beginning to see in Boaz that become a reflection of the promise of what Christ has for you and I. We're going to look at this sort of plan of redemption. So if you've got your Bible, that's where we're going to pick up today. Chapter 2, right? We've read this twice now, so I want you to be really familiar with it. Um, and and the, the women have now come into town. The barley harvest is beginning, and this is what God begins to do. So before we read this together, let's take a moment and let's just pray. Lord, I thank you that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even dividing joint and marrow, soul, and spirit. God, you promise us that. God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. Um, Lord, it is not a, a, a guidebook or an assistance for our life, but it is the very thread of life. It is, it is your word. It is breathed into by you. And so, God, I pray that as we read it, you would speak to our hearts in a powerful way. Take a moment and just in your own life and just ask God to teach you something this morning. Just whatever God's going to do when you just ask him to teach you something. And take a moment and pray for someone beside you. I always ask us to do this. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Even if you've never seen them before, even if this is your first time, just, just pray for somebody else. Pray that God would move in them. He would do something in them. Lord, we pray that you would open your word to hearts, that you would teach us in a remarkable way. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' perfect and holy name. Amen. 
So this is chapter 2. We're going to read the whole thing because I want, I want you to see the whole thing because we're going to be lifting pieces out of it this morning. So hopefully this is familiar to those who have been coming for a while. But this is what happens. They're coming into town as a barley harvest beginning and Ruth chapter 2 verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Now Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. And she went out ahead and began to glean the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. And Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? And the foreman replied, she is the Moabitess, who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves from behind the harvesters. She went into the field, and she worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go away and glean another field, and don't go away from here. Stay with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. Whenever you are thirsty, get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? And Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given comfort and you have spoken kindly of your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here. Have some bread and dip it into the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvester, she offered, he offered her some roasted grain, and she ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up, and do not rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned the field until evening, and then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered, and Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth Ruth told her mother-in-law about about whose place she had been working, and the name of the man with whom I work today was Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, said Naomi to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to you or the living or the dead. She added, this man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth, the Moabitess, said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finished harvesting my grain. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. All right, all that to say. There's some pretty remarkable things that are happening. And I'm not going to recap all that because the past two weeks we've spent really looking at that chapter and unpacking some of the truth that's in there. We've talked about sort of the powerful ways that God was providing for Ruth and Naomi through this guy named Boaz. And for these weeks, we've looked at Naomi's and, and Ruth's misery. We look at their hopelessness. We've looked at, at Ruth's noble character. We've sort of seen something in her that seems to be a little bit different. We met this guy named Boaz, who seems to be this man of standing, and how he has favor for Ruth, and the sort of extension of kindness that he gives her. And we've kind of looked at all those things. So rather than kind of exploring those one more time, what I want to do is pull back a little bit, and I want you to see something that's really at play here. 
And I've been telling you from day one, this is a story about redemption. The whole picture here is one of God's faithfulness, redeeming people. And the picture here that's laid out is one that I don't want you to miss. And we're going to look at it as we get to the very end of this chapter four weeks from now. But I want to stop halfway through. Now we're halfway through the book, and I want you to see some of these things that are at play. And I want to do it where I left off last week through the words of Boaz. Now those of you that weren't here last week, this is where we left off. Kind of renowned preacher and teacher Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said that Jesus is our glorious Boaz. Now think about that statement for a minute. Here's what we know about Boaz. We know that Boaz is a remarkable man, that he was a redeemer of people, that he showed grace and kindness, not because he had to, but because he he was kind of in love with who God was, and he found great favor with Ruth. It wasn't because he had to, but because he wanted to. It was because of his expression of love for the Lord and his expression of love for Ruth, right? So we get this picture of this grace-filled man named Boaz. Now, Spurgeon calls Jesus the glorious Boaz, meaning if Boaz is this man of redemption and character, he does things that he doesn't have to when he shows grace and love, how much greater is Jesus, this glorious Boaz? Meaning that Boaz was just simply a man, but Jesus in all of his glory is the picture of redemption that's played out through Boaz. So Boaz, right, is this picture of redemption, but Jesus is this glorious Boaz. Now, now keeping that thought in mind, that Jesus is our kind of glorious Boaz, that he is the perfect redeemer, I want you to see some things that come from Boaz's lips that I believe are deep foreshadows of gospel truth and redemption. That's kind of what we're going to look at this morning. And I want you to see three of them, three things that Boaz says. And there's more in this chapter, but I want you to see these three things. Because these are the gospel truths, I think, that change us. And the reason this book is is so important in our understanding of how much God loves us and just what he did for us through Christ. The first thing I want to point out is this, is that you have a new identity, all right? Look at verse 8. Verse 8 is a really powerful picture, and one I talked about a few weeks ago. But Boaz says this, Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go away and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. Whenever you're thirsty, I want you to get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So Boaz walks up to Ruth. He takes this initiation with this girl who, who he doesn't really know, but he's heard about. He's heard her story. The whole town was astir when her and Naomi came in. He looked at his form and he says, who is that? He says, you know who that is? That's Ruth. She came in with Naomi. She's the one that left her family, and she sits under the wings of God, and the foreman explains this whole thing. And Boaz walks up to her, and he says, my daughter, don't go away from here. I don't want you to glean another field. I want you to stay here. Now, I told you a couple weeks ago that the power of this is mostly lost on us, right? Because it seems like just a really neat part of the story. But Boaz is actually doing something really powerful here. He's giving Ruth this completely new identity. Now, remember, here's Ruth. She's a foreigner. She's a Moabitess. She's from kind of a, a, a hated worship enemy, if you will, of Israel. She's a widow, right? She's not from a good family. She's broken. She's hot. She's sweaty. She's a mess. She's been working the fields all day, right? And much, much, much more, she's in abject poverty. She is poor. She's picking up trash grain from his field. That's her identity. And I told you a couple weeks ago, she's a hot mess. I mean, she is a walking disaster on some level. And that's her identity. It's what marks her. Everyone would know her as a foreigner. They would know her as a Moabitess. They would know her as a widow. They would know her as someone that was picking up the throwaways from someone else's field. They would know her as that. And essentially what Boaz does, he walks up to her and he says, 
no more. No one's going to know you like that anymore. And he calls her my daughter. And this is a remarkable thing. Because Boaz basically gives her a completely new identity in front of everyone. He doesn't say, hey, hey, widow, gleaning that field, I, w- I want to take care of you. He doesn't say, hey, hey Moabitess woman who is a foreigner, I, I want to take care of you. Or don't glean another field. He looks at her and he says, you are mine. He says, my daughter. Now remember, Ruth had walked away from her whole family. She had left everyone. She looked at Naomi and said, I'm not coming back. I'm leaving my family. But Boaz says, you're not known as that anymore. Instead, I'm giving you a new identity, and that identity is wrapped up in me. Now, this is a really remarkable thing, and you can probably see the gospel truth that's there. And, and the scriptures fill with this sort of picture of God giving us new identity. But the, you know, kind of the most notable is that one that comes out of 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where, where we learn, as Paul says, that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Meaning simply this, that when we surrender our lives to Christ, we are no longer identified by who we are, by what we've done, by our history, by our past, by our sinful nature. We are no longer identified as this person that did this, had that, failed at this, went that way. We're no longer identified even by our own family. But we are identified as new creations in Christ. We are given a completely new identity. And this is what Boaz is doing for Ruth. He's saying, look, I'm going to give you a new identity. And it's going to begin by what I call you. I'm going to speak for you. And I'm going to tell the world who you are. And you are mine. This is exactly what Jesus does in our lives. That whatever you've done, whatever sinful mess you've been, whatever mistakes you've made, whatever failures, whatever victories, whatever triumph, whatever things you cloak yourself in to define you, Jesus says no more. When you surrender your life to me, you become marked by me. I speak for you, and I call you my child. And Jesus actually uses this same language over sinful people in the Bible. We told the story of the woman that had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, I told it two weeks ago, when he looks at her and he says... No longer going to be known as a sinful woman for 12 years who's been marked by a condition, but you are my child. And he calls her my daughter. The reality of this picture is that Boaz is doing more than just simply taking care of Ruth. He's giving her a completely new identity. When we surrender our lives to Christ, we have a new identity. Now, for a lot of us, that's not hard to kind of get past if our life is one marked by failure, Right? But a lot of times that we don't want to surrender is that part of us that we uh, kind of excel at, that we're known as, that are, are, are kind of definitions of our life, right? I'm a, I, I work here, or I've done this really well, or I, I'm famous for this, or whatever. But when we follow Christ, we surrender all of that, and he renames us his, and he gives us a completely new identity. When Jesus redeems us, he not only rescues us from what the world says about us, but he rescues us from what we say about ourselves. And we try so hard to define our own lives by what we do. We try and perform for God in the world. We want everybody else to see our lives and say, you know what, Ah, that guy's a pretty good dude. Or she does this really well. And we try and do that to the Lord so that even when we fail, we can say, God, at least when I fail, I'm trying really hard. I tried. And God says, look, that doesn't define you anymore. I define you. You are my child. I am freeing you not only from your past, but from who you say you are. So quit trying. And Boaz looks at Ruth and he says, my daughter. And you can imagine what everybody else around him was thinking, right? Here's this poor, dirty, sweaty, Moabitess servant girl walking around, widow, picking up trash grain. And the owner of the field, the owner of the very grain, the one they all worked for, looks at her and he calls her his child. 
This is a remarkable thing to have done in public. And this is what Jesus does. He gives us a new identity in front of the whole world. And no longer are you defined by what the world says. But you have a new identity in Christ. So we have this kind of picture that we have a new identity. It comes out of verse 8. And it's a really powerful foreshadow of what Jesus speaks over us. So we've got this, this sewer, a new identity, which is just dripping with gospel truth. The second thing I want you to see comes out of verse 14. And this is a really co- something that's constantly overlooked in this, in this story, but I don't want you to miss it. Verse 14, Boaz says this. At mealtime, so they've been working all day, and I guess they came to mealtime, whenever that is, probably when everybody's hungry, I guess. And Boaz says to her, Ruth, he says, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain, and she ate all she wanted and had some left over. So they got a chance to break and eat, and Boaz was a good employer. He took care of his employees. We know this just from the interactions that we see them having. Well, at mealtime, Boaz feeds them all. And he brings all his workers over and they eat. And, and the, the sort of the poor and the widows that are out there gleaning the fields, that wasn't an invitation for them, right? He just basically, were, they were allowed to glean by law and so they were kind of on their own. But at mealtime, Boaz looks at Ruth and he says, come here, come here. I want you to take some of this bread and I want you to dip it in the wine vinegar. Just basically saying, I want you to eat with us. And then when she sits down among all the harvesters, and the harvesters were the men, Right? When he sits down among them all, he says, hey, have some roasted grain. And he himself, the owner of the field, the owner of the grain, serves her. Now, I told you last week, this is probably the best meal that she's had in who knows how long. I mean, she is a poor widow. She's been eating pretty much what anyone just basically hand out. And he serves her this bread and wine vinegar, and he gives her this roasted grain, which doesn't sound like much to us, but would have been a huge deal. And what this is, is that Boaz gives her an invitation. And it's not an invitation to come and eat. Okay, don't miss that. It's an invitation to belong. If it was an invitation to eat, there's a thousand better ways to do that. If Boaz was just worried about her being hungry, he could have gathered up the bread and the, and the wine, all the stuff, and the roasted grain, and taken it over to her on the side of the field, and he could have said, listen, I don't want you to be hungry. Here, have this. In fact, have some more and take it to your, your mother-in-law, Naomi. Look, I'm going to provide for you. He could have done that. He could have fed her a thousand different ways. But it wasn't about food. It was an invitation to belong. He says, you come here and sit with everybody that works for me and let me serve you. This invitation is unbelievably remarkable. Not just because she was a poor widow and needed food, but because he invited her into his fold. Now, as I was reading this, I was like, you know, there's, this echoes such truth of an invitation that you and I have. If you remember way back, in a, well, I guess it, maybe you won't remember, but about a year ago, we looked at one of the parables in the book of Luke chapter 14. It was the parable of the great banquet. And this is basically how that parable goes. Jesus is actually sitting with all Pharisees. He was invited to this fancy kind of dinner party. It didn't happen all that often. Usually he ate with a bunch of sinners and broken people. But he's sitting with all these Pharisees. And they're having this fancy dinner at this guy's house. And, and Jesus looks at the guy that's, that's hosting this whole banquet. And he looks at him and he says this, Luke chapter 14. He says, you know, when you have a dinner party, don't invite your neighbors and your family members. But instead what I want you to do is I, I think you should invite the poor and the broken and invite them to come and eat. Because your family members and, and your neighbors, they can repay you. But the, but the poor and the broken, they can't. And then one of the Pharisees kind of chimes in. He says, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Amen. In fact, blessed be everybody that eats at the table of God. And Jesus basically says, look, well, hang on, I'm not finished. And he says, here, let me tell you a story. 
there was a story about this man that was going to have this great banquet. And so what he did is he looked at all these, these people and he kept telling the town, hey, look, I'm having this banquet and I want you to come. And the time came for the banquet and he sent out the invitations, but nobody came. They all had excuses. The person that went out delivering the invitation basically discovered that everybody had an excuse. And Jesus gives a couple of examples. He said, you know, the guy that took the invitations came to the first person. They said, I, I can't come to that banquet. I just can't because I, I just bought some land and I, I need to go check on that land. So the guy takes the invitation over to another guy, and the guy says, oh, I'd love to come, but I can't because I just bought five yoke of oxen, ten oxen, and I, uh, I can't. i got to go check on them just to make sure they can pull, right? And then he goes to this sort of other guy over there, and he says, no, I want you to come. You're invited. The, the, the kind of the banquet thrower wants you to come, and the guy goes, I can't come. I just got married. So the, the, the guy comes back to the guy still in the banquet, and he says, no one would come. I gave all these invitations, and everybody had excuses, and he kind of lists them off. And the banquet kind of guy that's throwing the banquet says, okay, well then go out into the city. And I want you to get the blind and the lame and the crippled and the broken and the poor. And I want you to bring them all. So the guy does it and he brings them and he comes back to the guy throwing the banquet. And he says, there's still room. I brought everybody in that category. And the banquet guy goes, fine. Then go outside of the city. Go to the county lanes. Go to the roads. Bring everyone you can. I want my house to be full. This is a really remarkable parable, especially being taught to the Pharisees. Because as you think about it, here's what's unfolding. The Lord is a great banquet thrower. And throughout history and throughout time, he's used the prophets to declare the coming of the kingdom. And his very presence in the room was sort of the announcement of the coming of kingdom of God. And it was the demonstration of the banquet. And he's sitting amongst the Pharisees saying, basically, here I am, the very invitation that you have. But you've got a bunch of excuses. And they're all lame. And here's why they're lame. Because who basically buys a field without checking it out? Nobody does that. If you're going to buy a big piece of land, you're going to go by and look at it. You don't want to buy a piece of trash. So nobody buys land and then goes, oh, wait, I need to go and see it. I just spent my money on this land. In the same way, oxen were incredibly expensive. Incredibly expensive. And the only reason you bought them was if they were strong and they could pull a plow. So no one bought five yoke, which would be like ten oxen. No one would buy and then go, oh, I need to go make sure these oxen can pull. I just spent all this money on them. And they wouldn't make sure they could pull before they bought them. And then the guy had the excuse, oh, I can't come. I just got married. Whatever that means. Like, anybody that's married knows that, that, you, that your wife hates to get dressed up and go to nice places, especially with her husband. They just deplore that, right? What does that mean? I'm too busy. No, no. Jesus says, look, your excuses are lame. And the Pharisees were living in the middle of those excuses. Saying, no, we're holding so tightly to the law that we created we refuse to see the invitation in front of us. And so Jesus says, fine, right? Go get the broken and the lame and the crippled. In other words, go get all those among you that everybody else won't count. Bring them in. Well, there's still room. He says, then fine. Go out and get the ones in the county, on the county lanes, up and down the roads. Basically saying, look, go get the sinful. And then once they're full, go get the Gentiles. Go get everybody that's outside of this city. And that represents, all those people in the county lanes, represents you and I. It represents the Moabites. It represents everybody else. But see, what Jesus is doing is he's inviting through this story, this great invitation to come be a part of the kingdom of God. It's not an invitation to eat. It's an invitation to be part of the kingdom of God. This is the presence of Christ. That we are invited to partake in God's eternal, eternal kingdom through Jesus. It's the great invitation. It's a foreshadow of what Boaz is doing. He's not inviting Ruth to come and eat. He's not inviting her to a one-time blessing. 
He's inviting her into his fold to be a part of the table, something so much bigger. And this is what we get through God, through Jesus. We have this invitation, not for a one-time blessing to be saved so that we can make sure that we get our way to heaven, but to be part of this whole kingdom of God where abundant life begins today. You're invited. That's the truth that's foreshadowed in Ruth. That you're part of the sinful, the broken, the lame, and the blind. That you're part of the Gentiles. You're part of those on the county lanes. And the the God of the universe is inviting you to his table where he himself, through his son, serves us. We have a new identity and we have an invitation. And the last thing I want you to see this morning is this. And it comes out of verse 15 and 16. You are not condemned, right? So you have a new identity. You are invited. It was kind of flip-flop, but I'm just following the track in the story. And you are not condemned. Listen to verse 15. Find it here. So after mealtime, when Boaz invites her and he sits her at the table, he says, as she gets up to glean, Boaz gives the orders to to his men. Even if she gathers from among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So check this out. The, The law allowed for the poor and the widow and the foreigner, right, to glean the fields. And basically what that meant is that you walked along the outside edges of the field, and as the, the, uh, the cutters, the harvesters, went through and they cut down the grain, they would drop it. And a lot of time the women and children that were employed by the field owner would come by and they would gather those, those up off the ground, they would bind them together in these giant sheaves, right? They were just big bundles. They were then transported to the threshing floor. Well, by law, by Mosaic law, the foreigners and the widows were allowed to gather on the outside of the fields and walk around and pick up the trash. That's what it was. It was all the stalks of grain that weren't worth bundling up into the big, giant, nice, good bundles. And they were allowed to glean. And they were, it was done so that the poor could have provision. They weren't receiving handout. They were working for it. But the law was set up that way. Now, Boaz knows that. Everybody knows that. And Boaz says this as she gets up to glean. He looks at all of his employees and he says, You see this woman who just ate at the table with us, who I call my daughter. He goes, here's what I want you to do. Even if she gleans from among the sheaves, which means if she walked in the field and she was picking up right where she shouldn't be, don't embarrass her. In fact, what I want you to do is I want you to reach into those giant bundles and I want you to pull out the good stuff. And I want you to drop it on the ground and I want you to let her pick it up. And do not rebuke her. In other words, don't correct her and don't tell her she's wrong. Unheard of. Don't condemn her for doing exactly what she wasn't supposed to be able to do. When I thought about this, here's what I thought about. What an incredible picture of what God does for us. I mean, Boaz basically says, don't rebuke or embarrass or condemn her. Why? Because I've spoken for her. Because I'm telling you that she's not doing wrong and that I've spoken over her. And as I thought about this, I thought, what an incredible picture. I mean, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says this, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For he is the law of the spirit of life, and he sets us free from the law of the spirit of death. That's what Romans chapter 1 says. There's no condemnation when we're in Christ. I find this remarkable because what Paul's saying is, though, even though the law sets us up for death because we can never morally keep it, none of us can keep the law, he says Jesus speaks over us, speaks for us on behalf of us when we surrender our life to him, when we accept this invitation, So that there's no condemnation. The word condemnation basically means to be found guilty. It's got a criminal connotation to it. That's what it means. When you're condemned, you're condemned of something awful. Paul's saying, even though you can't keep the law, there's no condemnation for you. Why? Because 
the creator of the world, the redeemer of the world through Christ has spoken over you and you are spoken for. So even though Ruth goes to the sheaves and she does it exactly wrong, and the whole people all around her can look at her and say, you are condemned, you are wrong, I'll embarrass her and make a fool of her. Boaz says, you can't because I've spoken for her. You and I will fail. We will fail. We've failed already. We will sin and we will make giant mistakes. If we haven't already made them, we will. But God speaks over us through Christ. And he says, there's no condemnation for you. Because you have received my invitation, you have a new identity, and I speak over you in Christ. Look at these truths. I mean, these are powerful things running through this book. It's why it's a story of redemption, that we have this new identity in Christ, that we have been invited into this kingdom picture, and that there's no condemnation for us. But here's the one thing I want you to see that holds all this together for me. This is what I don't want you to miss this morning. Where does the action lie in all this? It doesn't lie with Ruth, does it? None of it does. Ruth could not create her own new identity. She couldn't look up and say, hey, I'm not a Moabitess anymore. Don't look at me like that. Or I'm not a widow. Or I'm not poor. Everyone would be like, yeah, you are. We can see it. She couldn't create her own new identity. It had to be given to her. Boaz takes the action. He says, you are mine. You are found in me. I will define you. He gives her a new identity. She couldn't invite herself to his table. She couldn't be on the outside being like, hey, what do you got over there, roasted grain? You mind if I come in and have a seat over there? I mean, I'm not doing anything. She can't invite herself. She had to be invited. In fact, she sat on the outside until Boaz says, come here. The action lie with Boaz. And then finally, she couldn't say, hey, by the way, I'm going to come in here and pick up in the middle of all these grains. Don't embarrass me or rebuke me. I'm not doing wrong. She can't do that. She can't not rebuke herself. She can't declare that. Boaz has to speak for her. All of the action, all of the redemption in our story is in the hands of Boaz. As followers of Christ, as people, as just anyone, we, can't, we cannot redeem ourselves. You cannot create your own new identity no matter how hard you work. No matter how hard you try, you cannot create your own new identity. You may mask some things about you, but at the end of the day, you are the same sinful, broken person. Our identity has to be given to us in Christ. You can't invite yourself into the kingdom of God. You can't say, God, look, I've done a lot of good things. I know I've done some bad things, but look at this mountain of good stuff. So if you don't mind, I'm coming in. We have to be invited. And finally, we can't not condemn ourselves. We can't say, well, you know, I've done pretty good, so I think it's all, all good. My, my good will outweigh my bad, so I, I didn't do anything wrong. I have no sin. I'm not condemned. It doesn't happen that way. Through Christ, we are declared righteous. We are declared free. We are declared sinless. The action lies in Jesus. So here's my point. Quit. Quit trying. Quit trying to perform for God in the world. Grace is not something we earn or work for, but it's something that's lavishly and and sort of in a free way bestowed upon us through the Redeemer who gives us a new identity and invitation, who does not condemn us. The story is rich in gospel truth. Let the God of the universe, the God that created the fields and made the grain, the God that breathed life into your very lungs, let him be the one that speaks over you and for you and into you.
because redemption lies only in the Redeemer. Let's pray together.